Hi, folks. Uh, Jeff Landfield back here with a uh, very exciting podcast that I've been trying to do for a while since the big quake. I'm here with Rob Witter. Rob, how you doing? I'm fine. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, uh, it's nice to be here. T- tell us real quick about who you are and, and what, you, what you do here at the... I'm a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Anchorage. And uh, my, what, I, what I like to do is study earthquakes. I, you're, the guy, you're the guy I need to be talking to right um, now. I'm one of them. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to talk with you. And we're here at APU. This is where your kind of facility yeah, is. Yeah, we, really we nice. have the, the Alaska Science Center is on APU campus in Anchorage, and we have I think almost 120 scientists here, and they include uh, geologists focusing focusing on earthquake hazards, but we also have biologists studying Alaska's environment, as well as um, people who focus on on water and hydrology in the state. So when I first came in, I I emailed you and some other people trying to find someone to. Um, talk to me on yeah. a podcast and I came in I was kind of in a hurry and I, I said for some reason I said Rick I'm here to see Rick the geologist and I said oh, okay sure hold on and then Rick this guy Rick comes out and I'm like hey like do you want to go to your office he's like who are you I go I'm here for the podcast he goes what podcast and then the the office manager lady was like wait do you mean Rob and I was like I went to my email and I was like yeah Rob sorry the guy, yeah. the guy looked so confused. He was like, who is this person? Yeah, he, he didn't expect anybody. <laughs> With this equipment. I should have came, came straight up. That was, that, was, that was my bad. They it was called Rick and not me. Because it was yeah. Rick the geologist and yeah. you know, Rob the geologist. So, um, so what I want to talk about a bit here is uh, we had the big earthquake. You know, yeah. It was a, you know, Magnitude 7. 7.0 on the Friday morning, the 30th. I was getting out of bed. Mm-hmm. Roommate was in the shower. It was yeah. like a scene out of Borat. <laughs> it, was, it was really intense. Um, so I've been here 14 years. I was in the one in 2016 that was like two in the morning. I was actually on top of a hotel. Yeah, the Aniskan earthquake. That was a magnitude 7.1. Very similar type of earthquake. Um, and, and if you're interested, I can explain where these things happen and, and why they happen. So, what, yeah, what I, what I want to talk about is, is kind of the science, like really yeah. what's, what's the earthquake. And then I want to talk specifically about this quake we just had um, and then the 64 quake. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the distances and the depth and how much impact those things have, those factors have on how we feel it here in Anchorage. Yeah. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about the first, this one we just had, that, you know, the distance from Anchorage sure. to depth. And then um, we'll talk about maybe like land versus water, tsunami, mm-hmm. and then the 64 quake. Yeah. Yeah. This earthquake we had uh, two Fridays ago was a big one, a magnitude seven earthquake. It happened in the Pacific Plate, which if we live on the Ring of Fire here in, in South Central Alaska, and two plates are colliding. And most people know a little bit about plate tectonics. There, there are several major plates around the Earth that move relative to one another, and we're sitting right on the edge of, of two that are colliding together. The Pacific Plate's moving north, northwest, and it's crashing into Alaska. And because the ocean plates are denser than continents, the ocean plate's diving below Alaska. And it's in that ocean plate, the Pacific plate, uh, squarely below Alaska that this earthquake occurred. Alaska's on the North American plate, right? Alaska's on the North American plate, right. Yeah, so uh, Friday's earthquake occurred at about 25 to 30 miles below our feet. And it was a, a fault within 
these that we geologists call it subduction the process of of an ocean plate getting dragged down beneath a continent so, so there's three kind i mean i believe three types of yeah. quakes right yeah that's there's, right yeah there's a, a subduction earthquake which is like the earthquake <coughs> that happened in 1964 that's not what this one was but this happened in an a subduction zone, which is basically the convergence so of two plates. Where the quake happened, is that directly where the two plates meet, or is it in a different spot? It's in a different spot. It's it's uh, not really on the the area where the two plates met, but it's deeper down um, where the Pacific plate's actually diving below, and it's bending. And we like to think about it as if the the ocean plate was a big candy bar, like a Snickers bar, and as it bends just as you would bend a Snickers bar, the chocolate coating and the crust cracks. Right. And it's just these cracks that are going off. And, and, and they actually uh, happen quite frequently. Most of them are small earthquakes that we, we usually don't feel, but Alaskan residents, uh, especially here in South Central, feel little earthquakes all the time. And often these are earthquakes, uh, you know, magnitude threes, fours, fives, that are these, this well, when, cracking of the bending plate. When the big one, when the seven happened on the 30th on right. Friday, I originally, I was getting out of bed, and I thought it was kind of the ones we're used to, where it shakes right. a little bit, like a few seconds, and you're kind of like, oh, you know, uh-huh. normal, and then it really started to go. Um, so there's subduction, that's kind of co- crashing together, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about the uh, one where it slides? Yeah, there's, so so a great example most people know are the San Andreas, but let's bring it back. San Andreas Fault in California is a strike slip. That's the one fault. you can see, right? From the- yeah, you can see that from space, for sure, but you can also... Um, we also have one in Alaska. It's called the Fairweather Fault, and it's in southeast Alaska, and it comes on shore in kind of the Glacier Bay National Park area. Um, and, and this is actually one of the fastest slipping strike-slip faults in the world. It's like a San Andreas on steroids. So strike-slip is they're moving kind of in opposite directions of each other. Yeah, and they're, then they they're moving get- horizontally where one side moves to the right with respect to the other side. These are right lateral strike slip faults um some some faults in the world move the opposite direction but um but here the denali fault that broke in 2002 during a magnitude 7.9 earthquake is another example of a a strike slip fault like that strike slips can produce very strong quakes just like a subduction oh yeah yeah very strong place but the but the important thing about um about these faults like the denali fault and the fairweather fault are that the earthquakes that occur on those are shallow, so the the source of the sh- seismic shaking, the earthquake itself, is much closer to the surface of the earth and and uh, usually produces much stronger ground motions. We had a lot of damage in the earthquake two Fridays ago, but because it was so deep, some of that shaking produced by uh, by that earthquake was probably damped because of so what, much, like 30 I, miles of, of earth. That's what I wanted to ask. If there was the same quake, same location, but at like five miles. Exactly. What, what yeah. would have, how much stronger would it have felt? It would have been much, much stronger, and the intensities would have been higher. Same, there, same. There what, likely would have been greater damage. What, what determines the uh, length of the shake? Because in 64, yeah. it was like four or five minutes, right? Right, yeah. And that, that's, that's an important thing to, to, to point out, is that this earthquake slipped... Okay, remember, an earthquake isn't a point on a map. That's the epicenter, which is above the point in the earth that started to break. And then that breakage that started on the morning of Friday, November 30th, then cascaded along a surface that's a fault plane. So it, it basically broke a fault in the Pacific Plate that was more or less the size of 
anchorage proper. And, and that wow. slippage happened over a period of about 11 seconds. Now, the shaking that we felt ranged from anywhere from about 20 seconds to 40 seconds. Maybe some people felt it longer than that. And the duration of the shaking is both related to how big the fault area is that broke, but also the ground that you live on. If you live on soft soils or a pile of you know mud, it, that tends to make the shaking greater. We, we call it amplification of the seismic shaking. And you can think of that like if you had a bowl full of jelly and you shook it, you know, you could see on the surface of that bowl of jelly, it would jello, jello, I meant to say, um, it, it would kind of make waves and, and tend to amplify that jello. But if you had a, you know, a, a cookie sheet of brownies and just shook it, yeah. It would basically mm-hmm. shake, and it wouldn't wouldn't make it even so, greater. So these obviously these quakes happen. That one and the aftershocks, all these different quakes all around Alaska, and you guys have these sensors. I just I guess I'm curious how do how do you how are you able to so quickly determine the depth and the location? I mean I guess location the, it's a little easier because of the surface. But how do you how do you guys so quickly like no this is 26 miles and 10 miles away? Oh this is our crew in in Golden Colorado the. National Earthquake Information Center does that. And we don't do that here, but seismologists in the USGS and also in the Alaska Earthquake Center up in Fairbanks uh, can use seismological data collected from seismometers around the state, but also around the globe. But they're on the surface, right? Yeah. But they can then use those to record the time that the shaking arrived and then back calculate where the source or the origin of that shaking it's occurred. almost like a triangulation type? Kind of like a triangulation. But yeah. how do they know the depth? Um, they, they, use, you know, a, a, they use a geometry that's a, a global geometry, and they can calculate how far down it's it was. It's amazing. I mean, it happens, and I yeah. think we all have the app now, right? And if you didn't have the app before, I mean, I think most people have it. And you feel it, and you go check, and within a few minutes, it's like, you That's know, right. Bam, number, depth. There it is. Distance. Yeah. And, and they, they do go back and, and look more closely and reanalyze it to, to fine-tune those uh, characterizations so, of, the, of the earthquake. Yeah, because sometimes it might be like a 5, then it's like a 4.8 yeah. or a 5.2. It's, it's really difficult to get the magnitude and the precise location within minutes, but um, they're getting better and better at it. So we talked about subduction, strike, slip. What's the third kind? Well, the third kind is... Um, what's called a normal fault. And these things happen out in the middle of the ocean. Oftentimes they're called spreading centers or the place where volcanoes occur. That's and, where they come pull apart, right? And ocean, ocean floor is being created, yeah. And, and two sides of the ocean are pulling apart. Um, there, there are other examples, but that's just one of a normal fault. And in fact, the type of fault that broke um, on November 30th was a normal fault in the downgoing, plant, plant, uh, downgoing plate. And normal faults uh, accommodate or allow extension. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, how can we explain that? If, if you're pulling two things apart, they'll, they'll come apart uh, along a crack that separates. And that's what a normal fault is. And because the Pacific plate's bending beneath uh, North America in Alaska, it's pulling apart as it bends. Just like I was saying, you know, if you take a Snickers bar and bend it, the top side of it extends mm-hmm. and it creates a little normal how, faults. How, how, where these plates meet, I mean, what are we talking, like, what's the kind of area? I mean, how, how, how big is the area where the plates are meeting? Is it miles or is it? 
well like now wide, I guess. now we can now we can begin to compare what happened on November 30th to what happened in 1964 so where the Pacific plate meets North America and Alaska I mean it stretches for uh, a thousand more than a thousand miles from Prince William Sound all the way out to the western tip of the Aleutian Islands, and there the two plates are in contact. I'm seeing that little cool map, you, you guys can't see it on the podcast, right. but there's a nice, very nice map here that shows the plate, the North America, and the Pacific, and all these different. It's kind of a 3D type. Yeah, it's a block diagram of the Pacific plate crashing into the armpit of Alaska. The armpit is south central Alaska, where where you know kind of goes from. Kodiak Island through Kenai Peninsula and then bends down uh, around into southeast Alaska. Um, and on that map, you, you can imagine there's a big pink area that stretches from Port Valdez all the way west to Kodiak Island and from Prince William Sound all the way out to the deep Aleutian Trench, mm-hmm. which marks the, uh, the plate boundary, the boundary on the floor of the Pacific Ocean where the Pacific Plate meets North America. Well, it's that area, it's about, uh, I think it's like 500 miles long by 150 miles wide at depth that broke in 1964. So I, I saw a documentary on that and the guys that came up here to study that, they, I believe they termed that, coined the term mega thrust. Yeah, that's, that's what we like to call. Um, that sounds pretty intense, mega thrust. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a thrust fault, but it's really, really big. Thrust is like subduction, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a thrust fault means one plate or one block of earth is being shoved up uh, over another one, and the contact between the fault uh, is very shallow dipping. So why was 64 so catastrophic? I mean, it was obviously very powerful, but it, yeah. was, it was much further away than the, Friday, the one two Fridays ago, right? It was like 80 miles away from Anchorage or something. I think it was, I read it was something like it, it. It was, but it actually caused Anchorage to drop. By, by many feet. It was Earthquake Park, right? We all kind of know about... Well, that yeah, then that's another thing. The ground failures in, in 1964 were greater than what we experienced uh, two Fridays ago as well. Yeah. So really, they're, they're two different beasts, really. I, I talk about earthquakes in terms of their personalities. and um, I like that, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they're not necessarily angry personalities they're just kind of stretching well uh, some people the, the, the some... earth is stretching and trying to relax okay um and and it does that through earthquakes which allows the tectonic plates to shift relative to one another so some people i spoke with uh, who lived in the 64 through the 64 quake uh, a few of them depending on where they were a few of them described it as rolling mm-hmm. long it was scary but it was like but then others described it as just like what we had on two Fridays ago, but for five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, depending on kind of, I guess, where you were. But w- why did, uh, I mean, that was a 9.64 was a magnitude 9.2, right? Yeah, 9.2. So yeah, so, so let's just, again, talk about the differences between the two earthquakes. So the area of the normal fault that broke uh, two Fridays ago was about 8 miles by 12 miles in dimension, Okay. The area that broke in 1964 below the surface of the Earth, this is the boundary, the megathrust between the two plates, was 500 miles long and 150 miles wide. Wow, that, that's... So you can think of it, how long did it take for you know the small patch to break last Friday? It was about 11 seconds. It took, it, in 1964, the fault that broke, it took four to five minutes for it to break. And that's why the shaking was so much longer, and that's why 
the the deformation and the damage and the impacts of that earthquake so, were so much greater. So okay, that's a good uh, lead into the next question. A lot of people, you know, and I'm kind of included. I'm not a scientist or geologist, but some people think, oh well, we had a big one now, and the pressure's off. Mm. But that's kind of bullshit, right? Because I mean, these are two totally separate zones, uh, areas, quakes. Right. We could have another one today, tomorrow, and, and ten years anywhere that has nothing to do with these these two areas. Correct. Yeah, it, that's that's really pretty true. Um, of course, in the weeks and even months after a large earthquake, like the recent Anchorage earthquake, you're going to expect to have higher rates of seismicity, and we all know those as aftershocks. And I, mean, this, I remember Friday night after that, I was right. I was on edge, man. It kept it kept it kept going, and then I thought I was feeling like the tremor. They were like phantoms. I didn't know if they were. So I put a glass of water on my table to, so I could see what was you know. Right. I was feeling uh-huh. like is this real or not. But um, even up until a couple of days, I mean, last weekend, mm-hmm. they had that um, at 10 in the morning or whatever, that five, that it just, it's, it's put so many people on edge, you know, and then some articles that are saying it could be months, it could be years. Yeah. 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 You know, aftershocks occur and then they, they occur most uh, often. The rate of aftershock activity is highest right after the event and then it tapers off. But aftershocks can occur months or it maybe even years. So what's the, the aftershock is the area around that area, the plates or the, the zone around that area that's kind of resettling? Yeah, or? you can think of it kind of as a smaller um, faults in, in the damage zone of the uh, main fault that produced the earthquake. The main shock will, you know, break this part of the, of the, of the fault and then all the parts around it will adjust, or there might be some small transfers of stress that cause an, a fault nearby do to have, break. Do you have any opinion about why both quakes were on a Friday? Is there something going <laughs> on in, on Fridays in Alaska? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's extremely coincidental. Yeah. I guess it's a one in seven chance, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so where were you at when this happened? Were you here at the office? or? Oh, no, I was, I was driving in. And uh, it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm one of the few people, and most of them are geologists, who were really disappointed they didn't feel the quake, really, because I was in my car, and it just felt like I was driving on a bumpy road, and I live on a bumpy road. So mm-hmm. my, what I saw first was um, some snow was falling out of the trees, and I thought, oh, it must be windy. I didn't know there were, it was supposed to be a windy day. <clears throat> and then I, I turned the corner, and... Uh, all of a sudden, I saw the telephone line between the telephone poles by my house do this big whip, and all the snow fell off of it. And I, no, that's not an earthquake. That's not a that's not a gust of wind. That's an earthquake. And I stopped. So I talked to several friends and people that were driving, and one one guy was on the Glen Highway going really like seventy, you know, yeah. seventy five, whatever. And he um, didn't know what it was. He, he thought something was wrong with his car. And um, and then he saw a transformer explode. Right. He, he's like, he thought we were getting like it was like the Russians. You know, he didn't know what was going on. <laughs> yeah, another, scary events. N- another guy sure. thought his brakes. He was like confused. His brakes had locked up, and he was really like, "What's going on?" Mm-hmm. And he wasn't kind of like you. He wasn't sure. And then he saw the the uh, stoplight yeah. just aggressively like shaking up right. and down. Really, yeah. and then that's when he kind of knew. I was home, and I, t- I was I got in between my doorway. I don't know if the doorway's the way to, thing to do. That's what people have always said. But I was being literally slammed, like into my doorway because it was right. going, I was like holding it and it was yeah. going, I thought, I really thought my house was coming down. It was, and I'm in Midtown, you know, it was, yeah. it was a scary it was, event. It was insane. A lot of people think their tires go flat if they're in their car they're, and they pull off the road and check their tires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, 
you know, we have all these zones. I'm looking at this map. It's a great map. Um, these are totally unpredictable, right? I mean, there's science. They're, tr they're trying to model predictions, aren't are, are they? Is that earthquakes are un unpredictable? At least um, with the science we have right now, there there's people thought that they might be predictable statistically or something else, but so far seismologists can't can't figure out a way to predict where and exactly when earthquakes are going to occur. But what we try to do is is forecast areas to where you'd expect to have large earthquakes. And uh, I think we do a pretty good job with that. We know we know there's a lot of earthquakes in um, in Alaska, and there's 90% of the seismic activity in the United States occurs in our state. And we know pretty much where those are going to occur. We just can't predict when. So uh, do you know much about the Haitian one in 2010? A little bit. Because that's also, it's funny, also a 7.0. I think yeah. it was closer and not as deep, but... I'd say maybe the building codes in Haiti aren't as... Yeah, you know, that was that was a strike-slip fault, magnitude 7 or 7.1, I think. A lot of people died in that. But it was one, really right? shallow, yeah, and, and they don't have the same modern building codes that we use here. And Anchorage is really progressive in terms of how they, they uh, have adopted uh, modern building codes, and I think that's reflected in um, the relatively little damage that we experienced in the region. Now, I don't. I want to be sensitive to people who did have major losses Eagle River to their houses. Some, yeah, I guess Eagle River doesn't follow. I was reading an article. They don't follow the same codes as we do um, for some of the buildings. Some of those condos there got kind of they're unlivable now. I don't know if mm. you heard about that. There's a whole bunch of condos that have sunk. I have observed some of the uh, some of the devastating effects to those houses. Yeah. What about, do you know much about, I'm sure you do, the Chilean one, the, the big, big one, the biggest one ever recorded? 1960, magnitude 9.5. 20 uh, minutes of shaking. Southern right? Chile earthquake, yeah. I can't even imagine that. Tw 20. Was it 20? I, I, that's yeah, what the, I was reading about it. It said 20 minutes. That, that That's probably a little on the high side, but yeah. 9.6. Mm-hmm. And this is this this chart is so is it still Richter or it's different? It's not Richter scale anymore, right? Or is it still the no? Richter? We use we use the moment magnitude scale, which um, relates the area of the fault that breaks to the amount of slippage on that fault, and then um, and then some factors that relate to how strong the rock is that broke. When did when did they go from that from the Richter scale to that? Oh gosh, I, yeah, I. I You'll have to ask me another day. I'd have to look back on the history Poor Richter. of that. I'm sure that's probably a guy, right? He's well, yeah. A person. But, um, seismologists, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Richter scale was useful, and, and it was particularly useful with a specific instrument and uh, that, that measured uh, ground motions related to California earthquakes. Mm -hmm. And the earthquakes that they were measuring were smaller than than earthquakes on the scale of a 1964 or 1960 earthquake. Okay. So there, those it was the fact that those instruments were not um, designed to record strong shaking or long period ground motions like like people described in 1964 that feel like you're on a boat or something like that. 60s were a tough time huh, for these. I guess these so. Yeah. So yeah. so the difference between well, we've had we've had recent. Um, mega thrust earthquakes lately in Japan in 2011 oh, the yeah, Tohoku the big, the, earthquake and, and the, then there was Indonesia. a 2010 uh, Chile earthquake and then there was the Indonesian earthquake in 2004 so, so the difference between a 9.1 and a 9.2 and a 9.3 right it's not just double I mean it's exponential right yeah it's an ex exponential uh, a function but the actual energy uh, that's released during an earthquake 
uh, is is thirty times thirty two times more every increment of magnitude. How, how much get. energy was how much more energy was released in sixty four than um, than this, this one? recent one? I mean, if you don't have the exact, exact number, it's but. it's more than a thousand times. Wow. Yeah, yeah, more than a thousand times. I was just talking to Huffman Elementary School fifth graders yesterday, and we talked about that. And, um, and I mean, even as an adult, it's hard to fathom. It know? is. Yeah. Imagine a kid trying to wrap their head around. Well. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the way I explained it to the kids. Um, if you think of a magnitude five earthquake, like we've all experienced aftershocks, a lot of these aftershocks are in that range, magnitude five. We use the the pasta magnitude scale. If you if you if you use a single strand of spaghetti as um, uh, an, a, just a, a simulation of a magnitude five earthquake and break it, a magnitude six would be thirty two times the energy. So take 32 pieces of pasta and put it in a bundle and break that. It's kind of, uh, kind of, kind of an example of what mm, yeah, the difference sense. would be. So by the time you get um, you get to a magnitude nine, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a, that's like a full million. Meal. That's a full meal. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> many meals. It'll like fill a doorway of pasta. So um, one more thing I want to talk about is the uh, the the what what triggers a tsunami and and from my understanding, limited understanding. The tsunamis are triggered when the the quakes underwater, mm-hmm. and this was under land. That's right. So when it's underwater, basically, the movement happens. The water gets shot shot up from the from the ocean floor, mm-hmm. and that starts the and that that the one we had a few, I guess it was a while back, six seven months ago. Remember the one that triggered all the Homer sewer Kenai? Yeah, that was last January. January. It was, okay. in, the, it was in the Gulf of Alaska off Kodiak. So. If this same quake would have been over water, would we have um, potentially had a tsunami situation? It's it's hard to say, but not likely. Because, again, this earthquake was in the Pacific Plate, which is way, way deep down in the earth. Okay. Remember, it was like 25 to 30 miles deep. And it caused very little uh, deformation or surface movement at, at, at the of the land at the surface. And if it was underwater it would have caused very little seafloor movement. And it's that seafloor movement or deformation that causes the tsunami, and, and, and that was the case in 1964. Well, most of the deaths in 64 were tsunami-related, right? That's true, yeah. I think it's something upwards of 80% of the deaths. In Even in California and Oregon, people got it. Yeah, it, it killed people in Crescent City, California, and, and Newport, Oregon. But, but there's an important thing in Alaska is that um, the, the upheaval of the seafloor in 1964 produced one kind of tsunami, you might say a flavor. The other flavor of tsunami happens much closer to shore in fjords like Whittier, Seward, Resurrection Bay, and, and Port Valdez. And that's where we get glacial streams that deposit a lot of sediment in these broad deltas. Those deltas are very susceptible to failure during strong shaking produced by earthquakes. And that's why um, there was uh, a warning issued in South Central Alaska last two Fridays ago because there was some concern that the shaking might be strong enough to um, to cause some. The, the, the one in January, I think it was. It sounds like might have been a rogue buoy or something, but everybody was. Remember, yeah, they were thinking the, there was a twenty foot or thirty foot movement on a buoy, and mm-hmm. everybody was like, "Here we, here we go." You know? Yeah, yeah, and I think we should all look to authoritative sources when you get your information, especially yeah, no, that, when it comes. Even to this safety. last one, there was some reporting of. There was some misquoting from some people about the oh, bigger ones coming in the afternoon, yeah. and that got spread around. 
radio and social media, and I think a lot of people started to worry about, you know, and the aftershock happened right afterwards. It yep. was kind of got people on edge. But yeah, yeah I think it's uh, very important to, I was out there with uh, somebody, we were kind of reporting stories and talking about things, making a video, but really the radio, they were doing a great job of informing folks, but the way it was working was there was no screener. There were just people were calling in and giving updates. And some people, you know, were saying some weird stuff. Yeah. Somebody's like, are the pot shops still open? Is is Taco Bell open? You know? Right. <laughs> weird, <laughs> weird stuff. Uh, so, well, one, one thing I, I'd like your listeners to, to think about is MOSA Anchorage is high enough where you won't have any tsunami. That's what I was going to So there's this kind of and, thought by some people, oh, we're going to, the, the inlet doesn't yeah. really kind of, it's not conducive it's, for a tsunami. It's too shallow to allow, uh, to allow tsunami waves to come in if they're produced from far away. In 1964, there was really no tsunami that entered Cook Inlet, although, you know, it was measured, I think, at the Homer tide gauge, and it certainly um, hit, you know, the, the outer Kenai coast on the, along the Pacific, so, so Kodiak Island, and other places. When the tsunami starts but, in the middle of the ocean, you can't really notice it, right? It's not noticeable. Yeah, yeah. There, it's, it's only, you know, a matter of inches or, or maybe a foot high, and it travels at the speed of a jetliner. It, it's really fast, hundreds of miles per hour. But then as it hits shallow water, it starts to slow down, and all the water behind it piles up. There's those videos where all the water in Thailand, where all the water came way yeah. out. Yeah. So then it comes on land like, like a river, like a flood, but it's coming from the opposite direction. It's coming from the ocean, and it just continues to pour in. And it just can, piles up and piles up, and it's faster than you so, can So where are the, outrun. The, the regions in Alaska that are... Um, Susceptible to tsunami damage or Valdez, kind of Homer, yeah. Whittier. Most these. of those those fjords uh, um, in and around Prince William Sound, Kodiak, um, Kodiak Island is also a, a place where it's important to it's important to really understand where you live or where you're visiting. Because remember, if you're a visitor to these places, or if you you know if, say you have a boat down in uh, Whittier and you go there frequently, you really need to know if mm-hmm. you do feel an earthquake when you're where down you by the harbor or along the shoreline, you need to know where to go and you need to practice that because nobody's going to be down there handing out evacuation maps. And as a general rule, it's, it's really good practice uh, to, to know where high ground is when you're in a seismically active area and you're down by the shoreline. Because if you feel strong shaking like we felt two Fridays ago, you need to act immediately and go to high mm-hmm. ground and inland as far as you can. What about that? Uh, oh, I forget that. Maybe, you know, it was near Juneau a long time ago. It was a quake that there was a, there was a huge um, mud, like a mudslide or like a, uh, a bunch of the mountain fell into the water and it created this massive tsunami that there was a guy, it was there with an H. It was some, uh, I forget. How, how long ago was this? Was uh, this the Latoya Bay tsunami? Latoya Bay, yeah. yeah. So, so that was a bunch of the, right. I, I read an account of a guy that was in a boat, a bunch of the 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 land or the earth it was a rock fall rock fall yeah. into the, and this guy was on a boat mm-hmm. he swears that he could see the glacier yeah. that you could never normally see he like people <laughs> don't believe it, but he claimed he was he went so went high up, up in the, the boat wave, yeah. on the wave that yeah. he could see the glacier back there that you could normally not see yeah there and, were three uh, boats in Latuya Bay during the time of that tsunami it it was triggered by the rock fall that generated the tsunami was triggered by a magnitude 7.8 earthquake on the Fairweather Fault, the strike slip fault I was telling you about, and uh, and there were three boats in Latuya Bay at the time and only one survived. One actually survived. Probably the guy that I read about where he said yeah. he could see the glacier. Yeah. He was like, "What the freaking out?" Yeah, yeah, it was wow. 
but but that was a kind of different. That was just the, the that's the rocks. highest highest tsunami recorded in in the world. So the rocks went. To, it's just like going in a bathtub. You drop a big brick in a yeah. bathtub. You're gonna the water's mm-hmm. gonna go up. Yeah, that's right. Who like a rubber ducky? You know, <laughs> go, go for a little ride. Yeah. All right, Rob. Well, this has been a great. I mean, very informative. Yeah, I think Jeff, a lot of folks, including myself, a um, little bit selfish on this one. I, I really want to know some information. It's hard to you Google and you re- see videos, but. Being able to talk to somebody like you who has the information, it's been very, very informative. Thanks. Yeah, and, I'm happy uh, to do it. It's I'm, nice I'm sure, to talk with you. I'm, sure this, I'm I'm going to go out there on a limb and say this might be one of the most listened to podcasts because everybody's like been asking me like get you know get somebody to talk about the earthquake. Great. Hey, that's so good to know. Maybe we can do a, do a follow up one. Yeah, we certainly can. Are yeah. you? Did you go to school? Where'd you go to school? Oh, I'm I'm from the lower 48. I'm kind of a, a new arrival here. I got here in 2011, um, but I studied uh, I studied earthquakes in in Oregon Washington I went to school in Eugene Eugene Oregon mm-hmm. been there for a while in Anchorage uh, since 2011 so I'm going to my eighth year and I love it I, I really like Alaska you look like you look this guy folks he looks very Alaskan he's got the <laughs> final shirt little beard yeah there, it means a lot US, to me <laughs> USGS I've been here since 2004 so all right uh, well anyways Rob it's been a real pleasure thanks for the information and I really enjoyed talking with you you're welcome Jeff thank right, you cool. see you next time Landline.